Well, it's good to see all of you. Good to have you. And uh, we're going to get right into our Bible study tonight. We're in 1 Kings chapter 19. Uh, before we actually study the Word, we're going to pray. And right before we pray, because I want us to pray specifically, make, make a strategic prayer tonight, uh, there's some things that are in the works um, for Vero Bible Fellowship. Uh, we're always looking for property uh, that we might be able to have a, a home, and we are looking at a, at a property here pretty quick. We don't know if it'll even be what we want, but just be praying that if it is, that it'll be obvious to us. And then also, um, we're looking at a space in town where we would rent for office space. We currently rent office space out off of 90th Avenue, which is way out west, and it's out of the way for people. Uh, this other site would be right down off of 14th Avenue. Uh, so it would be convenient. People could stop in during the day and the evenings. We could. It's large enough that one part of it we could leave open for this class and probably move most uh, of, of our classes that happen on these grounds over to that facility and save the rent here. So it has potential. Let's just put it that way. So Tuesday morning, the staff is going to ride over and take a tour of the, of the facility, and we'll just see. We're always nomadic, right? Don't ever forget that. Please don't forget that. We're, we're just kind of coming and going, you know, whatever. We just try to make it work. Good to see you guys. Our friends from the Keys are back. Mike, how are you doing? Wonderful. So glad to hear that. Wonderful. Well, we, uh, we want to get started. Let's start with prayer. Lord, tonight as we begin, there is nothing like the work of the Holy Spirit in building up the believer through the Word of God. We pray that tonight your Word would come alive in us and that each of us at our point of need, and the needs are vast, the needs are different for each one of us, but that at our, at our point of need, the Word of God would speak encouragement, it would speak hope, it would speak correction, uh, it would just do its work in us. And we're so thankful for your Word, so thankful that in this day that we live, we have a strong mooring that we can hold on to, the Word of the living God. And we pray that tonight, Lord, uh, this group of people, this congregation would be blessed together, not just individually, but corporately. And Lord, guide us as we look at properties, as we look at office spaces. Lord, we don't want to do anything uh, outside of your will, so we just want to join you. Make clear to us what you're doing that we might join you in it. And we give you all the praise. Amen. Amen. Well, 1 Kings chapter 19. Last week, Scotty Brown uh, taught on chapter 18. That's one of my, it seems like every time I'm away, it's a favorite chapter. I miss all the good ones. There is, no, that's not true. It's all good. The, all of the word is good. You know, it's just some, some chapters in the Bible are some of the great stories. And, uh, and I, I, I seem to miss out on some of those. But uh, I love chapter 19, and I think, I think it'll be a blessing to you as well. Verse 1, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done just very quickly in remembrance of last week. Uh, we know that Elijah went up on the top of Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel would be close to the sea, a mountain that runs down towards the sea. And it's way up in the north, northeast, or, or I'm sorry, northwest. And so he's at Carmel, of course, uh, Ahab, King Ahab of, the, of, his, of uh, Israel is there, and 450 prophets of Baal, and we see this standoff between uh, the prophets of a false god and the one true God. And of course, there's no competition. Uh, god is going to win every single time, and of course, that's what happens. He makes fun of the prophets of Baal as they're doing all their things, and uh, even makes a kind of like a little joke. Uh, maybe your maybe your God is in the restroom. Maybe he's taking a, a break. Uh, who knows what's going on? Finally, he gets up, prays a very 
foundational prayer and God brings down fire from heaven and licks up the water in the trench and consumes the sacrifice. And then Elijah takes the 450 prophets of Baal and orders that they be put to death immediately, slaughtered, and they were. And then, of course, he prays, and the, the cloud the size of a man's hand shows up, his servant said, and he tucked, tucks his garment in his belt, and he tells uh, the king, you need to go back to Jezreel, get out of here now. Uh, we're going to see a deluge. It's not rain for three and a half years. God's about to bring rain. And uh, out of the spirit, it says that Elijah beat the chariot down the mountain. So that's pretty cool to think about. God, uh, oftentimes they would have runners out in front of uh, the chariots, um, but he was flying. I mean, the spirit of God gave him all kinds of, uh, who was the guy in, in the Olympic event from England? Remember way back? Uh, Tuttle or Tittle or something anyway, and he he did the same thing. It's like God just gave him this supernatural ability, and he was in last place, and before you know it, he's he wins the race. And that's that's kind of like what Elijah experienced. And, and then Ahab goes, you'd think that that would have really changed Ahab, seeing that the one true and living God was more powerful than the than the god of gods of Baal and Ashtera and all the other gods that they worshipped. But it only hardened him. And he goes down the mountain, goes to his, his wife, who really rules the roost, Jezebel, the most wicked woman mentioned in the entire Bible, and tells her what happened. She's so ticked off, man. You'd think that probably she would recognize. I guess our gods that we worship are false. They're not real. And... Uh, Elijah's God is the one true God. But no, it just hardened them. The same thing's going to happen, the Bible says, in Revelation when it describes uh, the tribulation, the seven-year tribulation, that there are going to be these cataclysmic events, catastrophic events that will take place on the earth, and the people will only become more hardened against God. And the whole time between each of these 21 judgments that God's bringing... The angels are coming through and saying, the Lord is just. He has the right to do what he's doing. Turn to God. You know, basically, it's making the announcement that people would turn, would soften their hearts and turn back to God. They don't. They harden even more. They turn away from God. And that's what we see happening with Ahab and Jezebel. And so... Uh, she puts out the decree. Uh, we're we're going to read about this. And now we come into this retreat. Uh, we find Elijah, who was on the mountaintop, achieved great things for God on Mount Carmel, comes off the mountain, and he has literally overcome Israel, the king of Israel, the prophets of Israel, the, the false prophets of Israel. And now he succumbs to a woman, one woman, and he runs scared. And so that's where we're going to pick up. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me. Look at that, gods, small g. She's still holding on to the gods after they were completely defeated on Mount Carmel. May they do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. If you're not slaughtered like the 450 that you slaughtered by this time tomorrow, may the gods do the same and worse to me. So obviously she's hardened herself. Verse 3, then he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah and left his servant there. So he heads due south. He heads due south to Beersheba, afraid. This man of God was derailed by a woman. This prophet who took on the nation is now cowering in fear. Obviously, Elijah saw things playing out differently after he conquered Baal on top of Carmel. He just saw the people 
coming into a national revival, returning to God because God won the battle against Baal. He, he, he saw King Ahab turning and saying, oh, we've been worshiping the wrong God. Let's return to the one true living God. He has proven himself today on the mountain. Let's, let's he, that's what he expected to see. The opposite happened. And so he falls into fear, but not just fear. He falls into discouragement, tremendous discouragement. Uh, we don't know why Elijah made a beeline to Beersheba. Uh, this is about an 80-mile journey. I mean, he's, he's traveling 80 miles. That's how afraid he is of, of Jezebel. Uh, it doesn't say that God led him to Beersheba. What it does say is that he's in fear. And he ran, it says he ran for his life. So I think we're pretty safe in saying God did not instruct him to go down to Beersheba. This is, this is Elijah acting out of his own flesh. This is a knee-jerk reaction, which, by the way, can happen in our lives. We are walking with the Lord. Good things are happening. God's using us in ministry, and things are going well. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, we don't have a realized expectation. It's an unrealized expectation. Now all of a sudden, it's completely dark. We see crowds moving, or clouds moving in. It's ominous. And we wonder where God is. We feel as if we're all alone. So what do we do? We retreat. We run and hide. This story of Elijah is not uh, uh, a one-time one scenario or narrative. Many men of God, women of God, took time to retreat. Where were the disciples when Jesus was hanging on the cross? We know John was there with Mary, his mother, and some of the women. Where were the men? They were like Elijah, cowering in fear, afraid of the Jews, afraid of the Romans. This is not an uncommon theme, and, it, and it's not uncommon in our day among us. And it says in verse 4, But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom. So he left his servant in Beersheba, and then he himself went a day's journey further south, which would have placed him in the wilderness. This would have been on the west side of the, of the uh, Jordan River, uh, almost where the Dead Sea is, but due west between the, the coast and, and uh, the Dead Sea. It's a wilderness. Now, this is interesting to me. It's said that our strength can also be our greatest weakness. And that really is true. Your area of greatest strength can oftentimes become your area of greatest weakness. This was true for Abraham. He was known as the father of the faith. So a great man of faith. Yet, he hid the true relationship that he had with his wife Sarah from two different kings for fear of his own life. The man of God, the man of faith, lying. It happened to Moses. Moses was known as the meekest man on the face of the earth, yet there was a moment where Moses grew extremely impatient and he blurted out words of bitterness and it kept him from going into the promised land. Our area of strength can become the area of weakness. Elijah, too, failed at the point of great, his greatest strength. What was Elijah's great strength? Courage. You don't do what he did on top of Mount Carmel without courage, right? And yet now, look, it's turned into great fear and discouragement. Verse 4 says, and he asked that he might die. He, he got to this place by a broom tree and uh, curled up there and having a pity party, and, and he asked God that he might die. He said, it is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. So he's secluded, 
He's a day's journey from anybody. He's in a wilderness. And he prays to God that he might go ahead and die. God, go ahead. He won't take his life. Thank the Lord for that. He's not going to commit suicide. But he is asking God to go ahead and just take him out. Just take me out, Lord. This is the same mighty man of God who prayed that God would shut up the heavens, and God did for three and a half years. And then he prays down fire to consume the sacrifice on top of lofty Carmel. And then he prays for the rains to come and drench the earth again, and a deluge turns the dried earth into mud. Now he's praying that God would just take his life. What a contrast. And look how quickly it happened. This is not like months later. This is right after a, a spiritual high. The God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob manifested in a powerful way and sent fire from heaven and consumed the sacrifice. Wow! And then right on the heel of that, he's in despair. There's something in that for us to pay attention to, and that is that you cannot live off of the big experiences that you want to have with God. And Elijah can't either. Because that big experience, while it was great for the moment and gave him the energy to fly down the mountain ahead of a chariot, it didn't last after that. We can't live off of going from one experience to another to another, some kind of a manifestation of God. That's what keeps me going. No. There's got to be something greater than that that sustains us and puts us in the right position with God that we might continue to walk with Him. So this is very interesting. Now he's praying, just take my life. In fact, Elijah was one of the few men in the Bible who never died. That's interesting. He's praying, God, take my life. He, he's the guy that never died. God never did take his life. Uh, sometimes to receive no answer from God is better than getting an answer from God. If you're praying a wrong prayer, you don't want God to answer that prayer. Now, sometimes God does. God gives us what we ask, and what we're asking is amiss. It's off, it's off, uh, off base. And God says, okay, if, you're, if you've got your ears pinned back and you really want that, I'll give it to you. And you're like, whoo-hoo, all right, yeah. A few months later, why did God give that to me? <laughs> sometimes, we, sometimes we think prayer doesn't work because we don't get the outcome that we're praying. Please hear me, Christian. God's prayers always work because God's prayers are always connected to God's will not your will. And what we need more than anything is to line up with God's will, which means that we want to pray God's will. That's the greatest prayer you can pray, is to pray God's prayer. You say, what's God's prayer? His will. Well, what's, what's His will? You know, I've always wondered, what is the will of the Lord for my life? You know, you're thinking of vocation, you're thinking a person to marry, you're thinking about a where I'm going to live, and all these decisions, of what kind of a job does God want me to have? That's not, God's, that's not what we're talking about here. God's will is that you obey this and that you follow this. Can anybody disagree with that? You get this right. It doesn't matter where you live and who you marry. I'm telling you right now. If you're living this, you would never date somebody you shouldn't be dating. And whoever you marry, they're going to know the Lord, right? If you're living by the Word of God, you're going to marry the right person. And you're going to have problems like everybody else in the world, all the other Christians. But God's in the center of your relationship, and you're going to work through whatever problem you have. Why? Because you're living God's will. It starts with God's will. It doesn't start with our desires. And, and I think we get that all mixed up and, and backwards. And and we, we don't understand how things, how things work on God's side. God, what God sees is totally different than what we see. The Bible says that God sees the end, end from the beginning. We only see what's in front of us. That's it. You, you've, you've heard me use the illustration of a parade 
back when I grew up in Daytona Beach, my mom's here, in Daytona, we'd go down to Beach Street, which is right down by the river downtown Daytona in the old section of town. When I was a boy, that was the downtown. That was it. And, and they would have a parade, a Christmas parade or whatever parade it was. And, uh, and we would stand there on a, either a street corner or just on, uh, right on the sidewalk of the street, and we'd watch the parade go by. But from our view, all we could see was what was happening right in front of us. We couldn't see very far down this way, and we couldn't see very far down that way, but we could experience what's here. Okay, right now there's a band. Right now there is a, a, a bunch of clowns going by. You know, whatever it was at the moment, here's God's view. Way up here above the entire parade, he sees the whole parade at the same time. And if you think of that, that paradigm, then you have to know how foolish it is for us to question what God is doing. <laughs> yeah. Here he sees everything, and we're questioning him. We, we, here's what we see. He sees it all. And we're going, Lord, do you really know what you're doing? I'm really concerned here because this is happening, and I don't think you're paying attention. I don't think you're, maybe, maybe I need to spell it out for you a little more clearly. <laughs> we, our expectations are the greatest reason for discouragement in our lives. Expectations, unrealistic expectations, placing your desire ahead of God's desire. You've got to back off of that. That's what God is going to do with, with Elijah here. He's going to help him back away from that view. But Elijah, that's where he is. That's, that's what he's thinking right now. It didn't go the way I thought it would. And so now discouragement has filled his heart. Uh, so Elijah actually gets to the point where he's like, I guess my work for the Lord is done. That was it. I did the, the great thing, and then she chased after me, so I guess the Lord's done with me. Have you ever done that? Come to a point out of frustration that you just say, well, I'm just, that's, I need to let somebody else do it. I'm just going to step aside. Where is that in the Bible? And when you do see somebody take that position, isn't it usually connected to sin for you to tell God when you're done? God will always use those who have a heart for Him. I don't care how old you get. You might not be able to do what you could do when you were 40, when you're 60, or when you're 60, uh, you're going to do things you can't do when you're 80. But even at 80, you still have things to do for the Lord. He's not done. And this is where we are here. This is what's happening. What we need in those moments and what God provides and what really what this chapter is all about it's God, in a, in a time of discouragement, sending encouragement to Elijah. This chapter is filled with ways that God encourages Elijah, which is a message for us. If you'll open your eyes, step back from the busyness of whatever the ministry is or whatever the event was or whatever the situation is that you're facing, step back and let God by His Word begin to encourage you. It's not the ministry that makes us weary. You know, sometimes you know, we take that scripture, don't grow weary in well-doing. That's what the scripture says. Don't lose heart. Don't faint. Okay? As if the ministry itself is the reason for the weariness. I disagree with that. I'm not saying you can't get weary while you're serving. There can be some long days of ministry. I can tell you right now, with what we face this summer with some of our dear ones who the Lord called home and trying to minister to their families, but also the funerals and then a couple weddings thrown in, I can tell you there is a physical weariness from that. But it hasn't led to discouragement. 
When discouragement comes in, let me tell you why. Because you had expectations built into your ministry. And those expectations were not realized. And you grew discouraged. Now, let me ask you, now that we've been studying, I love the fact that we're doing parallel studies. Uh, we, we study the Word of God on Wednesday night, and we do verse by verse on Sunday morning. Sunday morning is in the book of Acts. So let me ask you this. Has Paul not taught us by his life that his expectations really never were met? Every time he'd go somewhere thinking one thing, something different would happen. Is that not true? It, it's not the ministry that's making you weary. It's the fact that what you wanted the ministry to do or to provide or to produce isn't happening. So basically what you've done is you've made the ministry your ministry, not God's. Because if it's God's ministry, you know that His ways are not your ways. He's not asking you to build the ministry the way you think it ought to be, and then He goes in heaven, wow, why didn't I think of that? No, no. He's asking you to join Him in His ministry. And know that as you join Him, there's going to be setbacks. There's going to be frustrations. Things will not always go as planned. But there's also going to be those moments when the sweet, quiet voice of God ministers in ways that whatever you produce doesn't happen. And God's kingdom continues to grow because you're simply a tool in the hand of God. You are the one pouring the water on the hands of God as He ministers. You're like using it to help him do his work. He's out there gardening, and he's letting you pour the water on the ground. That's your role. He's not asking you to set expectations. He's not asking you to build it your way. He's asking you to join him in his way. So I just want to bring this point home. I think it's important that we understand that it's not the ministry that gives us discouragement. Okay, it's, it's our unrealized expectations in that ministry that discourages us. That's what happened to Elijah. He saw it playing differently. He thought revival was going to hit Israel because of what, what happened on top of Carmel. That was not God's plan. That was Elijah's plan. And now he's discouraged. Look at verse 5. And he laid down and slept under a broom tree. So he talked to God. God spoke with him and... And uh, now he goes to sleep under a broom tree, and behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. Now, that is what you call the Lord's provision. Okay? Uh, you're out in the wilderness. There is nothing. And yet you wake up, and there, on the hot stones, you have a baked bread, and then you have a jar of water. What? Isn't that great? That's God. That's God encouraging the man who's discouraged. Now, here's what I love about this. You would think Elijah, who has fallen into discouragement and fear, this great man of God is now walking in his weakness, not his strength. And now he runs away. He's so far away, he's a day's journey into a wilderness where nobody can find him you would think that God would come to him and set him straight. What in the world are you doing out here? I thought you were a man of God. I thought you would walk in my in faith believing that I know what I'm I can't believe that you've ended up here and you're, you're cowering in fear. But God doesn't do that. God does not try to correct him and set him straight. When somebody's in discouragement, doesn't matter why they're in, why they're discouraged. That's where they are. Okay, when they're when they're tired, they're downtrodden. It's not the time to try to say, well, let me tell you why you're downtrodden. You ever done that to somebody, or somebody's done that to you? You're in a tough place, man. The last thing you want to hear is how you got there. You just need somebody to minister to you, and that's what the Lord does. He provides bread and He provides water. 
He sustains Elijah. There he finds these things, and he ate and drank and laid down again. Now, so what has he done since he arrived? Well, here's what he's done so far. He got there under the broom tree and complained and grumbled to God about how his life was over. Go ahead and take my life. You know, it didn't turn out the way it should have. Lord, I don't know what to do. I got this wicked woman chasing me down, and God, just go ahead. My ministry's over. Take my life. And then he sleeps, and then he wakes up, and there's food, and then he eats, and then he lays down, and he sleeps again, and then he wakes up, and there's more food. What's going on? God is ministering to his physical need before he addresses the spiritual. We need to remember that. When somebody's in a difficult place, uh, uh, they become discouraged, and you know good and well that they shouldn't be where they are, but that's where they are. You don't start with the correction. You don't start with trying to get them. You start by ministering to their immediate need. They might be emotionally depleted. They need to be encouraged. They might be physically exhausted. How did they get physically exhausted? Well, I'll tell you how they got there, because they didn't do what God wanted. They tried to do it their own way, and that's no, no, you deserve what you got. Well, that might be true, that the reason they're physically exhausted is they didn't do it God's way. That's not what they need to hear. They just need you to come along and provide rest for them. They're not going to hear what they need to hear from God or from those who God sends to them until they are rested first. We live in such a world that busyness is, seems to be the, the value. Frank Tillepaw, back in the 70s, wrote a book called The Tyranny of the Urgent. And so here we are, just trying to go from one thing to the next and not realizing just how weary we are and how many things we've launched in the name of God that God did not call us to. And we've grown weary in well-doing. And what we need, more than somebody coming and correcting us, first need to be emotionally rebuilt, physically strengthened. And this is what the Lord does for him. This is how God chose to first encourage the man of God who's lost his way. Okay? I can tell you that uh, I took... I took a sermon planning retreat last week. I was gone Monday morning through, uh, I think I came back on Thursday around noon. And my desire was to really lay out uh, some thoughts for sermon planning, you know, in the future and laying out maybe a schedule. And I did work on that but that took about 25% of my time. The rest, I was exhausted. And you've, you've been there. Coming through the summer, emotionally, I was spent from the loss of three good members of our church, just like you. Um, weary. I was just weary. And um, I rested. I rested. The majority of that retreat was rest because I needed it. I needed that more than anything else. The last thing you need is a preacher working on a sermon plan when he's totally exhausted. You want me doing that when I'm fresh, when I'm really at a place where I'm ready to, to really sense what the Word is saying and what God is saying. And so that's what happened. So I'm probably going to have to take another couple, three days at some point here in the fall to do some more sermon planning but I needed that rest. Some people would say, well, that was, that was a waste of time, blah, blah, blah. No, it was not. It was, it, was, it was still very valuable. You need to do the same. Some of you have not taken a break from whatever you do to serve or to work and whatever and help people. You need a little break, even if it's a, a, a one day, even if it's one day for just rest. It's so important that you do that. If you can take more than that, take it. 
but get away from all the busyness, the urgencies. And some of you are wired to live in the urgency. I'm going to say that's not a spiritual gift. Some of you are treating it like it is. It's not. That you can stay busy, 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 busy all the time. That's not a spiritual gift. That, that it, you need to rest some. Amen. All right. That's, I've gone far enough with that sermon. So, so verse 7, And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. So here's that ministry of the Lord, ministers to Elijah's physical needs, allows Elijah to take some rest. Sometimes the most spiritual thing a person can do is get enough rest and replenishment. That's, that's the most spiritual thing you can do. Do it. Don't put it off. Don't treat it like it's... I mean, those of you who've been raised by parents who did nothing but work 24-7, and that's all they, 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 they see the value of life is work, hard work, hard work. Uh, that is not the way of the Lord. He does want you to work hard, but then He wants you to rest. Amen? You say, well, Saturday, you know, the Sabbath, I can't rest. That's not, if you're a Christian, Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. Listen now, every day can be a day of rest in Jesus. Not that you take every day to rest, but you can rest on any day of the week in Jesus. And sometimes we need to do that. So, before God dealt with Elijah's issues of fear and discouragement, which were based out on false or fearful information, God ministers to Elijah's physical and emotional weaknesses. And there's another side to look at this too. If we're overcome with fear and discouragement, um, know that your God is not wanting to come down on you. In this story, God only wants to minister where you are first. That, isn't that how the Lord oftentimes, how He saves a person? He meets them where they are. He doesn't say, well, when you get your life in order, come and see me and I'll talk about saving you. That's what salvation is for. You can't get your life together. So God meets you where you are. Verse 8, and he rose and ate and drank and went in the strength of, the, of that food. He went on that, the strength of that food. He went 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. By the way, when you see Horeb, the mountain Horeb, that's always Mount Sinai. That's what Horeb is. It's also Mount Sinai. So, how far away is Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb from where he is south of Beersheba? Let me tell you how far. Try 200 miles. He's going 40 days living off of the sustenance that God gave him. How did God do that? Miraculously. The same way the Israelites lived in the wilderness for 40 years, right? And their shoes never wore out. Their clothes did not wear out. That's God. And that's what God did for this man of God. He gave Elijah time to recover from depression. And then he strengthened him physically. And he sent him back into ministry. Remember now, Elijah thought his ministry was over. Go ahead and just take me out, Lord. And God's like, you are so far from the end. The greater things are ahead of you than what you've experienced in your past. That's really, that was the truth for Elijah. The next thing God does is allow Elijah the opportunity to vent his frustration. Look at verse 9. These are all ways that God is encouraging Elijah. We should learn from this how to encourage one another. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. Okay, that's the same thing he said earlier. By the way, interestingly, this is Mount Sinai that he's come to, right? And the cave may have well been uh, the cleft of the rock. When you look it up in the Hebrew for cave, it can also mean cleft of the rock. Cleft of the rock, what does that remind you of? When Moses was on top of Mount Sinai and he wanted to see God and God hid him in the cleft of the rock, who knows, maybe it's the same spot 
that God appeared to Moses? I don't know. We don't know. Uh, don't Please don't believe here saying, did you know that? I'm not saying that. I'm just saying it's possible. It's plausible, right? Uh, there probably isn't another place on the earth that is more associated with the manifest presence of God than Mount Sinai. That's where Moses would go up the mountain and the cloud would, um, the clouds would roll in, the thunder that would settle on the mountain as God would come to talk with Moses. Wow. We're talking about a great place, a place where God manifested His glory that He told Moses, stand behind that rock and I'm going to pass by. My hind quarter is going to pass by. And Moses could not even stand to look at it. It was so, so glorious. Just seeing the backside of God, he couldn't handle it. The glory of God. So this is a special place, very special place. And, and, and so, verse 10, And I even, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Now let me ask you that, ask you this question. Is that God's perspective or Elijah's perspective? And that's why he's discouraged. Because he's believing lies. He's created in his own mind what the situation is, and it's inaccurate. No wonder he's discouraged. The reason we get sideways in ministry and become discouraged is because we are believing lies. We're not believing the truth. We've taken our eyes, look here, folks, off of the truth of God's Word. We put our eyes on the situation that we're facing. No wonder you're discouraged. There is no hope out there. The hope is in here. Amen? Discouraging times make God's servants feel more isolated and alone than they really are. Discouraging times don't allow you to see what's really happening or to trust God that He is working even though you can't see it. It steals hope. It robs you of energy. It robs you of ministry. Look at verse 11, and He said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by in a great... And strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. Interesting. So he's thinking he's all alone, you know, and man, I, we had that great experience on top of Carmel, and I thought a great result would come out of that. Nothing happened, only negative. And then God says, well, go out and stand, and stand on the mount before me. And God sends a wind that literally begins to break up the mountain. That's some heavy wind, folks. And it breaks it in pieces, the rocks. And after the wind on an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after that, fire comes, but the Lord was not in the fire. What are those three things? Wind, earth, fire, earthquakes, fire. What are they? I'll tell you what they are. They're manifestations that God presented in front of Elijah, but God was not in the manifestation. He's trying to teach Elijah something. Don't hang on experiences. I'm not in that stuff. Oftentimes, that's not me. It was on Mount Carmel. God was in that experience. But he's saying, not all, I don't always work that way. And then what does it say? And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And that really is in the Hebrew a great translation. A low whisper. God knew exactly what a depressed and discouraged Elijah needed. He needed a personal encounter with God. There was nothing fundamentally wrong with Elijah's theology, but at the moment that this was happening, he needed to hear from God. And it was a still, small, quiet voice that spoke. Sometimes you can't find God in the big event. You have to get alone with God. And in those moments, you say, well, I don't, how do I hear God's voice? It's right here. You get alone with your word, and you study, and you just 
meditate upon the Word of God, and God begins to reveal things to you, enlighten you, illuminate your heart. He begins to bring hope and encouragement. He, he, he begins to take away the darkness of the cloud. All of a sudden, you see the blue sky rolling in. This is what God does. It's not always some big manifestation that you need to have. Sometimes it's a quiet stillness before the Lord in His Word that the Spirit of the living God begins to move in your life. This is what was happening with Elijah. Remember what the Scripture said? Not by might, nor by power, but by my what? Spirit, says the Lord. You can't hear what the Spirit is saying when you're busy, when you're moving around doing and doing and doing. you got to sit. If we're not careful, we can look for God in some manifested way and miss Him altogether because He comes to us in a small, still voice. By the way, the Hebrew, if you want to put next to uh, that low whisper, right in parentheses next to that in the Hebrew, a voice of gentle silence. That's what it means. It was a voice of gentle silence. In other words, it was so quiet, and he was in such a meditative state of just sitting and waiting that the silence was speaking. God was in the silence. I've had those experiences when I've been in His Word in a place where I'm having morning devotion, you know, and I've been able to block everything. Usually I have to have extended time to get there. I can't get there quickly because the carousel in my head is just doing this. All the things that I need to work on. But as I sit, the longer I sit and wait and just sit before the Lord, meditating on His Word, look at this. Look, 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 look. Slows down. And in that silence, the Word comes alive. This is what Elijah is experiencing before the Lord. Remember now, Elijah thought that the dramatic display of power on Mount Carmel would turn the nation around. He probably thought that the radical display of God's judgment against the priest of Baal would change the hearts of the nation. But neither of those things worked. Those manifestations did not change the people. This is important for us to understand, especially preachers, because we can put all of our energy and time in our presentation and not realize it is the simple faithfulness to teach the Word of God that transforms the hearts of people. It is not your slick ability, your eloquence, your you know being a silver-tongued orator. I'm not saying that God's against people who have communication skill. That's good. We, we need that. But that's not communication skills don't save people. People are saved by those who are faithful to simply let the Word do its work. They're faithful to the Word. Remember, write this down. I'll read it for you, but you can just write it down. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Paul is telling the church in Corinth, after being in Athens, he came to them, and he's telling them how he approached coming to them with the message of the gospel. Listen to what he said. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Some guys can get up and preach, and I'm telling you, people are just enamored by that man's ability to speak. Enamored, okay? For I decided to know nothing, Paul said, among you except, I didn't want to communicate anything except, Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom. I wasn't impressing you. But in a demonstration of the Spirit and His power. In other words, it wasn't how I was speaking that changed you or transformed you. That's what, you know, this whole idea of a life coach. 
You don't need a life coach. You need the living Word. And you need somebody who will explain the Word. And when the Word's explained, the Word does far more than a life coach can do. Paul said, man, I, I didn't come to try to impress you and charge you up. I just came faithful to the Word and let the Spirit of God speak into you the Word of God so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. I love that passage. Verse 13 in our text, And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Sound familiar? God's already brought that to him once before. And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed the, your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. So he repeated. I mean, he's got this little uh, shtick down, doesn't he? <laughs> he he's, he's living in that, in that song of sorrow, right? Oh, woe is me. It's really where he's at. It's in self-pity. And then verse 15, and the Lord, how does the Lord respond to that? Because he's heard it twice now. God doesn't respond to it. Look what God does. Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. <laughs> he's, he's in this place of pity and shame, and oh, I'm just... Lord, I just let's just go ahead and take me out. And I've been faithful to you, and nobody's left but me, and the people are out to kill me, and it's just so bad. And the Lord's like, uh, get up and let's get going. There's ministry to be done. I've fed you, you've rested, I've ministered to you. I came to you in a still small voice. It's time to get up and get going again. Verse 15, latter part of the verse. Go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. Wait a minute, Ahab's the king. God sees the end before, from the beginning. God's way out in front of Elijah. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And that really speaks of a mentor relationship. So where Elijah is in self-pity and wanting to just lay there and just kind of sulk, God says, uh, it's time to get up and get going. I've got things to do, places to go, and people to see, and you're my vessel, you're my tool in my hand, and I just need you to get back to work. Let's go. So first he tells Elijah to anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. Why? Because God's going to use Haziel and going to use Syria to come against the northern kingdom for worshiping the prophets of Baal. They did more than worship the prophets of Baal. They legalized it. They legitimized it. They actually made it law that you worship the prophets of Baal. God's had enough. He knew that they would not change when he brought down fire from heaven on Mount Carmel. God has another plan. God's plan is to send in the Syrians to deal with the northern kingdom. And then I need you to go to Jehu to be the king over Israel. And then go and anoint Elijah to be your protege. Now remember, Ahab and his wicked wife still rule, but God sees the end. Elijah also needed a friend. That's why he tells him to go to Elisha, this young man of God. The core of his complaint before God was that he was alone. There's nobody left, it's just me. So God sends him to a man who can come alongside of him and support and encourage him and learn under him so that he might one day replace him. Elijah also needed hope, and since Elisha would be raised up as a successor to Elijah's prophetic office, Elijah then knew that his work would continue even after his death. God is so ministering to Elijah here in so many ways. If we would stop long enough to sit and listen and get in his work, it's amazing how that would encourage your heart and lift your spirit and give you a fresh view of what God is up to, and you would get right back into the, into the ministry. Verse 17, And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. So here's the plan of God. He's giving Elijah a little insight. Hey, these guys you're going to anoint become king, 
One's going to go out and attack, and the people who escape him, the second king's going to come, and he's going to deal with them. And then those who get away from the second king, Elisha, the man of God, the guy that will come after you, he'll deal with them. God's like, I'm all over this. Stop grumbling and complaining. Get up and let's go. We've got things to do. Verse 18, yet I will leave, as if that wasn't enough. Look at this, I love it. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. God's like, you're sitting here grumbling about being the only one. I've got 7,000 in Israel, the northern kingdom, who have not bowed down to Baal. What do you mean you're the only one? You don't have a clue what I've been doing. Who do you think you are coming to me and telling me what the situation is? You don't have a clue what the situation is. I'm your God. I'm always at work, even when you can't see it. Think about this. Elijah is the man of God. He's been traveling all through Israel. He didn't see a single one of the 7,000. But they were there. It's not like God just created those people all of a sudden and put them there. They've always been there. They never bowed down. Isn't that interesting how we can get into a self-pity party? And, and then God somehow reveals to us, dude, why are you complaining? I've got so many other people who are in far worse situations than you, and they're just working for the Lord and whistling while they, while they work. Makes you feel about that big, doesn't it? Now look, this is God correcting him. But look when God corrects him. At the end, not the beginning. He ministers to him first. And then later when he's stronger and he's able to go forward and he's still grumbling, now God says, now let me deal with that attitude of yours. Let me set you straight here. So God takes Elijah, the man of God, to the woodshed and wears him out and says, get up and let's go. Verse 19, so he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the 12th. And Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. When they cast the cloak, that means as a mantle. It's seen as a mantle, uh, a mantle of authority. And when, when, when a man of God would lay down that cloak in front of someone, it meant, I'm calling you to take this mantle, to walk with me. God's going to use you in a special way. Okay? And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? In other words, that reads really awkwardly in the English translation. Really, what it's saying is, uh, Don't forget what I told you, that God's got a mantle on you. So go take care of whatever it is you need to do, but you need to follow. And what did the boy do? He turns around, he runs, and he tells his parents goodbye, and he takes the 12 oxen, and he breaks up the yoke, and he uses the wood from the, ox, ox, uh, from the yoke, and he takes the oxen, and he carves them up. He sacrifices the 12 oxen. By the way, to have 12 oxen meant that you came from a wealthy family. And he takes his way of living, his income, and he literally offers it up to the Lord. You talk about somebody selling out for God? That's the guy God chose to walk next to Elijah. What a, what a great God. Amen? And he said to him, Go back, for what, I have done, what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people, and they ate. And then he arose, and he went after Elijah and assisted him. So... He cut them all up. He had a big, a big party to celebrate his leaving. That I'm going to go follow the man of God. God's put a mantle down, and I'm going to follow. I'm going to, I'm going to do whatever God asked me to do. And they had a big party in his town, you know. And then he goes a big barbecue, and then he goes off following after the man of God. So that demonstrates Elisha's complete commitment to following Elijah. He destroyed the tools of his trade. One commentator said this. Elisha must have had a considerable estate when he kept 12 yoke of oxen to till the ground. If, therefore, he obeyed the prophet's call, he did it to considerable secular loss, great loss. So to serve God, you have to have great loss. You better be able to give up whatever it is. Why? Not that, always, not that God always calls you to give everything up, but you better be willing to because down the road in the ministry, 
you will sacrifice and you will suffer greatly. Amen? That's part of the, hey, that's the expectation. Don't build up this unrealistic expectation. Just follow God and obey Him. That is chapter 19. Next week we'll be in chapter 20. Hey, we've only got three chapters left, 20, 21, and 22. Then we move into 2 Kings, and we really get into the ministry of Elisha, which is real exciting. By the way, those of you Bible students who want to, you probably know this, a lot of you, but <laughs> maybe some of you don't. Uh, in Elijah's lifetime, he performed 16 major miracles for God, or God did through him. 16 major miracles. Remember when Elisha finally, Elijah was ready to be caught up in the air in the chariot, and he turned to Elisha and he said, what do you want of me? What do you want from me? This is right before he leaves. And Elisha said, I want a double portion of the spirit that rests on you. I just want a double portion. He did 32 miracles. Is that not awesome? So Elijah did 16 and Elisha 32. It's going to be a great study. Let's pray. Father, tonight I pray that somehow you have spoken to each heart here in a very subjective way. That some of us who needed encouragement tonight or needed direction how to rest, how to uh, receive uh, 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 rest from an emotional depleted state, I pray that, Lord, we would turn to your word and we would be people of the word that we would uh, walk in the counsel of God and that we would live according to your will. And I pray, Lord, tonight that we would go home uh, with hearts of encouragement and strength because the Word of God has ministered to us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Everybody said? Amen. Amen. God bless you.